welcome to the Vocal Freedom Podcast. I'm your host, Lee Martin-Thomas. Join me and my guest speakers as we discuss their journey with their voice and how they use it to support their passions and professions in media, education and the performing arts. My guest this week is clinical voice disorder expert, speech and language therapist, Sue Jones, who I'm thrilled to connect with at a pivotal moment in her life, as only last month after enjoying a very fulfilling career, has now fully retired after a whopping 38-year service at Withenshaw Hospital. Throughout her career, Sue has been instrumental in developing voice clinic services, as well as developing standards of competency at all professional levels, from student to expert practitioner. She's used to leading teams of voice specialists who perform, interpret and teach laryngeal endoscopy, otherwise known as taking a good look inside people's throats with specialist cameras and equipment to assist with understanding and diagnosing a whole variety of speech, voice and swallowing disorders. I was fortunate enough to hear Sue talking about her work when she was teaching on a vocal rehabilitation training course I attended in 2017, which was a couple of months after I read her brilliant book, laryngeal endoscopy and voice therapy a clinical guide which covers the developing role of the voice therapist how voice clinics work what different clinic types offer the assessment protocol for spoken and singing voices along with vocal therapy techniques sue has a particular interest in the performing voice and through her skills working with professional singers from the classical world music theater and rock and pop a specialist performer's voice clinic service was established at University Hospital, South Manchester. Sue has lectured nationally and internationally and has been an integral cog in bridging the divide between the ENT, the SLT, the voice teacher and patient, which has led to the slow development of more multidisciplinary voice clinics suitable for voice professionals. I'm sure her voice and experience will continue to be highly valued within the voice community. And it's a joy to share this time with you, Sue. Thank you again for taking the time to join me today. I'd love to start by just asking you how you are enjoying your next chapter so far. (laughs) It's all a bit strange, obviously, because of the COVID situation. But uh, I must admit, I've been retired about three weeks now, I think. And I've loved every minute of it. So, yeah, uh, more relaxing, slower pace of life. I've got lots of things to do, lots of things booked in over the coming sort of months, few months six months 12 months or so on so yeah um all is good it's an exciting time I think isn't it I just feel like it's a chance for you to spread your wings a bit more and do more with your research I shall I'm kind of having a break from everything just yeah. to start off with Excellent. um I have got an honorary consultant post at back at the hospital and I will go back and do some teaching and be involved in some projects and I know they're quite keen to get me involved when we do some more educational work as time allows and uh, the facilities are are there for either Zoom meetings or even better, probably in the end, face-to-face yes. conferences and courses, which we all want to get back to in the end. So do some of that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to getting back into that, but I am giving myself a bit of a break currently. I think you deserve one. I mean, 38 years is an amazing um, an amount of work, and I imagine so much must have changed in that time in terms of the, oh, techn- yes. the technology that you're using now and the equipment. I mean... Well... Yeah, when I first started, it was a long time ago, but when I, I got my first job at Withenshaw Hospital in uh, 1982. And when I went, I kind of went as a you know, generalist therapist. I was seeing pretty much everything, including some children at the time, but, you know, that wasn't for very long. But what was 
quite good is that there was a lady who was specialising in voice work, but she, even though, in fact, her, her family had all completely grown up and she was very near retirement age, she only worked term time. So come the holidays, you know, the Easter holidays, the Christmas or whatever, and, and, and summer, she just handed her whole voice caseload over to me. Mm. So I just got to see them for a short period of time. But then when she came back, I had to hand them back. So I really developed my interest from there, I think, and I became quite fascinated with this group. But then after 18 months, she actually retired completely. So I said, oh, you know, I was really interested. And then and it's her voice case said it was tiny compared to what we do now. Mm. But at the time, um, it was all that was available. So I took on the caseload or all the caseload of voice patients. But you're right, things were very, very different. It was a much slower pace of work uh, all those years ago than it is now. And I actually was very fortunate to have a lot of opportunities to sit in on generally NT clinics and observe the ENT consultants. Now, again, it was very different because there was, or at least in the hospital I was working in, nobody was using fibre optic scopes. So it was a question of like standing relatively close as close as you felt comfortable with looking over the shoulder as a consultant forming an indirect examination of the larynx with a mirror so you used to warm the oh, mirror wow. and then put a tongue depressor on the tongue put the mirror at the back and he kind of had to stand there and say yes I can see what can you see this can you see that and half the time I'm going to be honest I couldn't actually see anything uh but I did learn an enormous amount about generally NT as well as the larynx so it was an extremely good time from the perspective of learning. There were very few, however, textbooks. Yes. Um, back in the 1980s, no voice textbooks at all. Uh, so it was very much intuition as, as far as I was concerned in treating the patients. Having said that, they did tend to get better. So I suppose I must have been doing something reasonably right. Yes. And I really, really enjoyed the work. It wasn't until probably the early 90s, 1993, I actually got the job of managing the services between Withington and Withenshaw Hospitals. Withington was actually a big hospital at the time. And I, I was the overall manager of both and doing some voice work over there. So I started attending what was an already sort of established joint voice clinic over at Withington. Um, and there, uh, the laryngologist, who subsequently became my husband, um, <laughs> was... Use, was using fibre optic scopes to examine the larynx and he was really keen for me to observe uh, the larynx through these scopes. Not only that, he was also very keen for me to uh, pass the scope myself. Now, I was really dead against this. I mean, really, I can't do that. We speech and language therapists don't pass scopes. It's, it's an invasive procedure, you know, and I was really dead against it, but I was persuaded, should we mm. put it that way, and you could only get so much info or very little information from the mirror examination but from the fibre optic uh, examination you could really get a lot and I think that was probably one of my light bulb moments mm. I began to say actually I can see an awful lot more and I learned so much from just looking at those examinations and not really to be honest at the time understanding how the voice was produced not in the same way that we understand it now so yeah it was very very different then Yes, very. Yes. Amazing. I, I almost want to go back and look up some vintage equipment because, you know, there's are, there are some of the older books on my shelf that you go, wow. Absolutely. In all the older textbooks, <laughs> yes. you will see all those pictures. Absolutely. One of the questions I ask everybody at the beginning of the podcast is, how would you describe the journey with your voice? And so sort of pre-training, pre-going into speech and language therapy, 
you were a singer. What led you down the sort of therapeutic path? Well, I when I was at school, I did music A-levels. I did French and English as well. I did music A-level. And I'd always thoroughly enjoyed doing the music side of things. I played the guitar, played the clarinet. I'm not saying I played them well, but I did play them. And in actual fact, for my A-level music, I did sing. And I was also, I was in all the choirs that you could be at school. I also conducted and led the first year choir when I got to probably the sixth form, fifth form, sixth form, something like that. And I also was part of a Christian singing group, which I led and played the guitar for and wrote, actually, in those days, wrote songs for as well. So I was very interested in music, but I was never really going to be a performer. I, I don't think I would ever have had the confidence to be a performer. And I remember, I guess the very way I got into speech therapy was that I was looking up in a book because there was no internet in those days, what you could do with various qualifications you'd got and I looked at what you could do with music a level and one of the things it suggested was speech therapy and I'd never heard of it I looked in a bit more detail and found out and went and observed some clinics uh, both working with children and with adults and thought actually I'm really keen on this I didn't know very much about the voice side of it there I just knew I wanted to work in that side of things and I I think I'd always probably liked the rehabilitation side of things mm. so yeah it came from I suppose it came from a musical background from that perspective. And then it wasn't until probably, I mean, I did the whole course. And when I went into the course, I thought I wanted to work with children. Mm, Um, By the time I finished the course, I knew I wanted to work with adults. But it wasn't until really, you know, I got into Withenshaw and again, took over this voice caseload that that passion for voice really started to, to grow. And it was from very early on in my career. I mean, like the way I look at voice and I'm sure you must, you know, you've seen thousands of larynxes over your career. Um, but I do have a sense, obviously, that high level performers are sort of, I would consider vocal athletes. If you, yes. Does that make sense? You know, in terms Absolutely. of the, their musculature yeah. has to be completely finely honed and understood and, and played at its best to be at that level. Um, I, can, I can understand that. So I, I also really interested, though, in, in how people's voices can break down, not so much in the professional field, but in general life and how that affects a person. So I imagine you've got lots of experience in that field too, helping people that have gone through voice disorders more through perhaps emotional tangles and things. Does that come into your work? Yeah, I don't think I've ever come across any patient who hasn't been affected emotionally by mm. their, their voice problem, either to a greater or lesser extent. Yes, you do tend to see it more in vocal athletes because it, you know, it affects their, their whole lifestyle, their, their income, everything. But every single person um, who's had a problem with their voice, have ever worked with or has clearly had an emotional reaction to it as well. I mean, sometimes it's the emotion and the stress or anxiety that might start the problem off. But even if that's not the case and it's due to something else, then they are affected because... I mean, we've probably heard, all heard it said a million times. Your voice is you. Um, mm. We listen when we pick up the telephone and we hear the person on the other end. We know who it is. And it's such an individual thing that if that goes, it changes you as an individual as well. And particularly if you lose your voice altogether, so you can't communicate at yeah. all. And it affects the way people treat you. But also your family can affect the, the different ways people respond to you. So, yeah, the, the, I mean, the emotional side of working with people, it can be it can be quite stressful because people do get very upset when, they, when their voices change. And that's probably one of the really nice things about when you can, you know, getting the voice to come back to normal because it gives them, uh, I suppose, a sense of relief in some, in, in some ways. Yes, I think that makes complete sense. And, and coming back to yourself, if you've had a, um, you know, if you've completely recovered from perhaps a vocal injury or... Mm. 
uh, a style of using your voice that, that needed to be sort of therapied away. Sometimes people just don't realise, do they, that their habits can be damaging. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the first things we always try to do, whoever we see in therapy, is to talk about voice care and advice because people don't know. I mean, mm. nobody's taught. Even teachers, they used to sort of have on teaching courses when we were sort of people were being taught to teach. They used to get some vocal training on some of the courses, but as you know, that seems to have dwindled over the years. And now nobody seems to get any uh, training on how to use your voice. And yet so many people need to use it for their work. Yeah, I think there are some there are some great teachers I'm aware of, some I've had, I've had on the podcast who, for example, Janet Shell, she does training for school teachers that need to speak over yeah. the, you know, the class to make sure that they know how to support their voices correctly right. and things. So that's really helpful. There's, there's quite a few services out there. I wondered if, if you had any insight about the fear and insecurity that can bring the person, the loss of quality of life and the anxiety and how the work that's done in the sort of multidisciplinary team can help to coach that person back to wellness? I think the words multidisciplinary team are absolutely crucial in, yeah. in those words because it depends on the type of injury. Certainly people we've had with lesions of some form or another, and maybe they needed surgery at some point. It's, it's a question of timing a lot of the time because you do have to work around them mm. uh, because you have commitments um, and sometimes you have to manage things as best you can and then they go on and do whatever the, their commitment is maybe that might be a cruise ship tour or a, uh, a musical or, or something whatever it is that they're doing um, and you have to time it all quite carefully so that it fits around their, their commitments as well as best you possibly can and we quite often work on the basis of give them as much therapy and as much ability to manage their own voice as well as they can and then we time the surgery at an appropriate point. And that's where I think it is essential that clearly the MDT is an important part of managing particularly high-level mm. performance. But I think there's another aspect too, which is about confidence. And I think when performers run into problems, they, they often, very often, lose a lot of confidence. And therefore, they're a little bit tentative about trying things. And sometimes it can be enough to say, actually, do you know, it's all fine down there. Your technique's really good, but you've clearly lost confidence. And that's when we send them in the direction of the singing teacher. Yes, yeah. That can sometimes be enough. Sometimes they need a little bit more than that, sort of a little bit, maybe a little bit of therapy to sort of bring them to the level where they're ready to go back to the to the, the singing teacher. But of course, what happens when they lose confidence is they stop singing and then become underconditioned and, and all those sorts of things. And I think actually with relation to the last year in COVID, that's happened a lot. You know, before I finished, we saw quite a lot of singers who just hadn't been singing because there hadn't been the work available for them. Yeah. And so they haven't been practicing in the same way. And then they feel they can't do what they did before. Sometimes we can be there to reassure them as well. Yeah, definitely. I think that's very much what I've seen working and sitting in with other um, speech language therapists. Is that there is an element of, you know, therapy to it. But do you know what I mean, though? That caring element, yeah. that really understanding and listening to the person in front of you. And I, I suppose what I imagine things may have been like 40 years ago, because of what we didn't know about the voice then, but because of the, the work that hadn't been done, the research that hadn't been done, that people weren't perhaps taken as seriously going to the doctor with a voice issue. I think there are, yeah, I mean, there's two aspects to it. I mean, first of all, we didn't understand mm. how the voice worked in the same way, which we learned an enormous amount. I mean, certainly in the 1990s, there were a plethora of books 
that came out. I mean, just one book after book after book. But there were also a huge number of courses in, the, in the conferences nationally, internationally, which I went on as many as I possibly could manage. And there were some great people then who really started to develop our, our, our sorts of ideas. In particular, that we, I remember we went on a, a course in Lyon, the ENT surgeon for nutrition, Mark Bouchard and Corner. They were just brilliant. And they opened my eyes so much on the the microstructure of the vocal fold and and, and surgery and delicate surgery and, and how to, I don't know how it was done and all that sort of thing. And then there was challenges on the evidence base, largely from Janet Wilson, Paul Cardigan in, in Newcastle, and on the therapeutic side from Christina Schul, and just opening our eyes, I think, and, and developing knowledge. And I think all that development of knowledge has made us better, able to understand, I think, a bit more how the not just how the voice is produced. When we started doing the endoscopy stuff, which we were talking about earlier on, and we were actually looking at muscle patterns and muscle tension, I think that enabled us to develop better therapeutic techniques. That really took off in the 1990s. Yeah. I mean, there was obviously ourselves, they were the, the, the Lewisham team, and there was uh, the Newcastle team, to name just three. But I think we were the, probably the three earliest innovators yes. of the veterinary teamwork and that's still in my view the best that's the gold standard that's the best it should be absolutely yes absolutely true so regarding others voices I'd love to ask you what kind of voices that you're drawn towards what you what you like listening to music wise who who would you uh never tire of listening to I'm a big fan of musical theatre massive fan I mean I think my favorite probably is Wicked well no it definitely is Wicked uh and Les Mis I love I mean I just love uh, love musical theatre uh, but I rather than having individual artists there are some artists that I, I do like I'm, I'm a big fan of country music I love Carrie Underwood for example oh. she's a great, great singer um, I'm also you know goes back a bit but I'm a huge fan of ABBA but the, sometimes it's songs it's individual songs that bring back memories rather yeah. than necessarily an individual artist so one that always kind of like makes my like, it gives me goosebumps is, is Ultravox into Vienna but, I mean, that was from the early 80s, but, I mean, that was kind of a particular time in my life, a lot of changes going on with that. I think sometimes, yeah, it's individual songs like like that. Um, and then we went, can't have been last year, it must have been the year before, we went to see a, a singer which I'd never really heard of, Rhiannon Giddens. Just been on the radio, I think, just recently, and I think she might have released something recently. Um, but I, I must admit, I didn't know very much about her, but... So we went and saw her just in a fairly small, uh, it was at the Opera House of Books, and it was a fairly small place. And she was just brilliant. So it's nice to try new things. It's like the soundtrack to your life, isn't it? You sort of have certain periods of music for your 20s, 30s, 40s and all sorts, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, I can relate to this. I'm getting on myself. <laughs> I do, you're doing something really well, though, Sue, because I have to say, having just seen celebrations for your 60th birthday, I didn't, I couldn't believe that because when we met, I thought we were about the same age <laughs> and I'm 46 this year. So there you go. I would I would have thought put you in your oh, 40s, love, totally. I think I still feel 25 inside, despite the fact that my eldest son is 33. You know, you, you just, I think it's your... You don't really age in your head in the same way that you age in your body. I suppose another question I'm, I'm intrigued to just sort of ask you in this moment is more to do with like when you hear voices, are you listening to them in a sort of analytical way or can you completely separate yourself? Because as, as a voice teacher, I, I sometimes have to stop myself trying to sort of 3D landscape what I'm hearing. Do you know what I mean by that? Yes, I yes. know I can't separate it. And yes, I do constantly analyse voices yeah. all the time. So it's 
Definitely not. I'll ever be able to get away from that. I um, both spoken voice and singing voice. I kind of and I'm, I sometimes I sit there and thinking probably more with the singing voice than anything else. And I do imagining what's going on inside, which is quite sad, really. But yeah, I kind of think, oh yeah, and I bet that's happening. And oh yeah, I can see the larynx raising there. Yeah. I can't I've also spent a lot of time with the spoken voice over the years one of the other areas I've, I've done a lot of work on is perceptual analysis of the spoken voice oh lovely so using um, a perceptual analysis scheme that was originally developed by a, a Japanese guy we started work on it in this country in about 2004 and I led a group where we would collect uh, voices that were disordered and then a consensus panel of us would sort of sit down, analyse them according to the scheme. So ever since then, I can't listen to a voice at all without analysing it according to this scheme. And yeah, it's the same with singing. Occupational yeah. hazard. It's amazing how subtle subtle changes in the body can affect the voice. I'm noticing that more and more and more and, uh, and how people carry themselves. So I'd like to ask you, um, what do you think is the most valuable thing any person should know about in terms of taking care of their voice? The most valuable thing... Drink plenty of water. Yeah, hydration. Yeah, I, I, I can't think of anything more important. I must admit, I am not the best person at it. It's, you know, I probably should take more notice of myself. But if, if you're going to think like one thing, it is you need to be well hydrated. Definitely, because it will make all the difference yeah, for everything else. Yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense. It's, it's just something you have control over. I mean, something we can't control our stress and anxiety levels. We can't control our environment all the time. But most of the time, by and large, we can control that. I'm fascinated to ask you more about those developments in the uh, technological advancement, actually. The, the instruments that are used these days... Yeah, the cameras have got better. This time last year at Withenshaw, we just invested in two brand new pieces of kit. Um, so brand complete brand new strobe systems, just at the same time as COVID hit and we had to close everything down. Oh. But the, the, I mean, we've used the system since. And yeah, the cameras are better. The, you know, the visuals are better. The images are better. There are various different types of lighting you can get these days. They're probably, those things are probably more important for diagnostics so if you're looking for lesions or you're looking for increased blood flow or, or something, they're not as important if you're looking at gesture. Yes. Um, but even so, from a diagnostic uh, multidisciplinary clinic point of view, yes, that there are, and I'm sure will continue to be advanced advancements. I'm actually still a big fan of what's called a, a, a rigid endoscopy, where it's not like the mirror that they used to use, to, and that was reflected onto the headline. It, this is actually a... a a rigid camera um, that goes into the mouth and it is limited I mean you, you can't do with your voice what you would do with a fiber optic one because it's, it's going through your mouth but it gives an incredibly magnified view of the vocal folds and it's really brilliant for spotting small lesions and it's great for looking at the mucosal wave in, in huge depth and I'm a little concerned the skill of doing those examinations is going out the window because as the fiber optic examinations uh, are better and better and the images are better and better people are sort of using that exclusively but i still think there's a room personally it's a bit of a bugbear of mine i still think there's room uh, for using these rigid examinations i think they do give an incredibly good view of the vocal folds in depth but yes the the technology not just the technology itself but our understanding of how to use it and interpret it interpret mm. what we're seeing because 
An examination is fine, but it's only as good as your interpretation of it. If you can do an examination, but if you can't, if you don't know what you're looking at and you can't interpret what you're looking at, it's actually not as much use. Mm. And I think that's particularly true when it comes to the singing. Often we, what would happen to a singer in, in the past is that they they would be examined probably in a generally antique clinic, maybe in a voice clinic if they were lucky, and they would have a fibro optic examination. But often there was nothing physically abnormal to see. It would look, in fact, incredibly healthy, incredibly normal. There would be no nerve damage, you know, and because it's that's not what the problem is. It's often the problem is incredibly subtle and specific. So it's only from learning to interpret what you're looking at and having lots of experience and saying, ah, yeah, that, that's where that very specific problem is. But you can really give the singers the answers to the questions they need. Mm, definitely. Well, also, I mean, I was speaking with Kerry Obit on the podcast a few um, months ago now. It was last year now. She had a really cool way of explaining because she does a lot. She had done a lot of MRI stuff with um, the larynx to see what to try and see more of what's going on. And of course, she explained that whatever view you get in all the apparatus we have, you never get the full story when it yeah, comes to voice. And that's one of the reasons it's so difficult sometimes to see. But obviously with things like the cameras getting better and like you're saying, this rigid one giving you a much, much clearer image, something that could have been missed on perhaps one of the fibro perhaps it wouldn't have seen so much detail. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah so sometimes. Yeah. I mean, even though the fibro optics are brilliant, I mean, they're, they're far better than they used to be. They're, they are really great. But still, sometimes, in my view, the rigid ones will give you, because it gives you a hugely magnified view of the vocal folds themselves. Yeah. The, uh, if you put the stroboscopy on, you get the mucosal web going through. If you're looking for something small, it is another. I mean, we wouldn't do it for every patient by any means, um, yeah. but sometimes I just think I really want to do a rigid now because it will just give me that extra information. And I think that, and I, I totally agree with Terry. And, and anything you do, it's not only just giving a full picture, it's still only a snapshot in time. Yes, yes. When you're on that one occasion, you, know, you could do it a week later and it could be different. Mm. I once had um, a lady many years ago, it was now, and she had was she was a singer. She was having problems with her voice. And we we did examine her. Um, and then she was going where I think she was going on a cruise ship. And she learned the technique, and you may have even shown you this on the course a few years ago, of sticking the, her iPhone in the back of her mouth and to get a picture of her vocal folds. I don't know how she did it. So one consecutive days or every few days or whatever, she she would take these pictures with her iPhone. And then when she came to the clinic after the cruise uh, trip, she showed us the different images. And it was really quite interesting to see how some days she would clearly have a lesion on the medial edge of her vocal folds. And yet after a few days rest, and she took another picture, it would go. That was another light bulb moment for me. I thought, oh, hang on a minute. So I might see her on X day and I might see this, but what if I examined her a week later? It might be completely different. So, yeah, is any laryngeal examination is only a snapshot. Just that time. moment in time. Yeah, that's incredible. So, it, again, it's important that we are careful. I think when when we're making these diagnoses, often if we've sort of had a diagnosis with somebody and then it's a bit of been a gap till their operation, say we have missed them or something, we would want to examine them again. Yes. So, you know, just prior to it, just to make sure things haven't changed. Absolutely. So there are some things that the body will spontaneously heal, um, given the right circumstances. But in other circumstances, you know, medical intervention, very important. And you can get that person back to full vocal health. Absolutely. Yeah. 
going back to sort of when I started to develop an interest in examining the singing voice, uh, like you alluded to before, I had previously sung myself a lot, but I hadn't at that by that time. I'd been bringing children and doing master's degrees and, and various other things. Um, one, again, a light bulb moment for me was Kim Chandler came over. Uh, well, she was in London at the time. I think she came up and she came in as part of a, a research project. And of course, Kim is a, a belty singer. She's, she's, she's very rock and pop. And she, Kim was about a lot when she sings, isn't she? And I was quite keen to see what would happen on the inside of her larynx. And Kim being Kim really wasn't very good at keeping still when we were doing these examinations. And I think one of the things I, I learned, and this is, this is probably going back about 15 years, maybe even slightly more, is just how much in a, a singer like Kim, a rock and pop singer, just how much movement there, there is in the larynx. I think going back to when I first started with voice, I just see when you, you, know, you sang that everything just stayed in one place and it just stored beautifully open all the time. And that's just nonsense. Um, and then I think there was a lot of talk in the, again, probably get 15, 20, 20 years ago about how the healthy way to sing was with a you know, very stable larynx and it was very unhealthy with distortion was unhealthy, all these such things. And what we began to see by looking at all these different types of singers and particularly black kids, it's not healthy at all. It's the way you do it. Mm. Um, part gets out of, you know, singing with distortion or with a lot of constriction or, or with a lot of, uh, you know, uh, movement in the larynx if you can't get out of that that can be a problem but uh, listening and watching and seeing just how much movement there was I learned a lot from that um, mm. and watching different styles so you know and now it's very easy for me to see you know, a rock singer will sing use their larynx very very differently to a musical theatre singer for example or a folk singer or a jazz singer and they I find that all that absolutely fascinating me too um, I love what <laughs> I love watching them. Well, the first larynx I got to see was my own. <laughs> in terms, yeah, right. of, yeah, I had a scope back in um, I think it was two thousand and seven, uh, and that was one of the catalysts for me going into teaching and learning about all this stuff because I was so fascinated as a singer. I was suddenly like, wow, I didn't know my bits and pieces looked like that. And yeah. I, I had a um, a private consultation years ago, but it was there was a big screen, so what was being shown on there was also I could see what was happening. And I was suddenly going, there's nothing open in there. We know when you've been told as a singer, you know, it's got to feel all open. I'm like, there's nothing open in there, literally, as we're making sound, the vocal folds close and vibrate. So I was just blown away. And that's what started my passion into understanding the nitty gritty of what that's all about. (laughs) I think the Estill course in terms of vocal production, that that was a starter for me. I think we know that that's it's not a finished product, you know. Uh, No, I think it's it's, it's quite interesting because I did before I did Estill actually I did a course called Voicecraft with Alison Bagnall who Alison died many many years ago Alison was initially uh I think she was a product of Joe Estill's team course or whatever and she went off and kind of interpreted things slightly differently um, and then sold her own model of this trademark this Voicecraft thing I did two of Alison's courses on Voicecraft first and again, another libel moment. I mean, learned so much. And again, did the still actual course later. It enhanced our understanding of how the voice is produced enormously. And I think it's been very positive. But I worked with Charlotte Jerry on a, a course in 2019, must have been, 
in Manchester and I kind of did the, the therapy side of it and she did the, the Estill side of it and it was kind of meant to be, it was meant to speech therapy, it was meant to be vocal rehabilitation sort of stuff. And in fact, so she would sort of present the theory bit and then I would talk about how you would use that therapeutically. So we tried to make it have a very, very practical application. To me, that worked really well because it wasn't just these are the figures, this is what you do. It was these are the figures, this is how you do it. And this is how you use it in, in a therapy session. That makes um, so much sense. I, I, th- I think the people who went on the course found that helpful. And I certainly, when you're putting it together with Charlotte, found it a very helpful way of, of looking at things. So I think they have, I mean, it's been a major contributor as well. Yeah, absolutely. A brilliant, brilliant work. You know, some of that is incredibly useful in, with, in lots of ways. Um, but it's, it is, it's how you interpret things, isn't it? It really is important that you don't, I think some people can get really bogged down on this is a recipe of this is how things are supposed to happen and then yes. get too bound up in, in trying to do things that really shouldn't be concerning somebody in a moment of singing or performing, right? <laughs> and I think, yes, I totally agree. And I've seen a few singers come in to the clinic and they have been, they've, and they've done the course and they are so wrapped up in how their voice is being, even to the level of, well, when I do this, I think my originals are doing that. Or when I do that, um, I think this is happening. And what's ended up with, with each of these, and I probably see about four or five people who've done this, one as young as 18, actually. Wow. And uh, they've lost their love of singing. And what's happened is the emotion has gone out of their performance. Mm. Because they're so busy thinking about, I mean, how on earth they can imagine where the originals are? I have no idea because I don't know where mine are uh, when I'm talking or singing. But they've, 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 they've analysed their singing voice to such a degree that there is no joy left. Yes. And I've been sort of saying to them, forget. Don't think, it would. yeah, we've checked you. Yeah, it's all absolutely fine. But it's very tense and very tight because you're overthinking it, you're overanalyzing it, and you've forgotten, you know, how to connect with what you're doing and I suppose with their audience as well yeah and that's not going to come across very well of course not and and in that that's a big part of my work and that and trying to get that across in the podcast in and in how I work is emotion is massively uh, a part of communicating whatever you're communicating you know we're not just different parts moving we're, we're body mind and spirit I think that is so true and I've noticed I mean I've uh, I've belonged to a community choir now for a few years and well, I mean, unfortunately, we've all had to go on Zoom, haven't we, over the last 12 months. But what I, I mean, and the, the lady who leads our choir list, I mean, she's absolutely brilliant. Um, and she does great warm-ups and she does, she's great with technique and um, leads a, a great, quite a big choir. So we do do quite a bit of work on technique, but it's not actually for me until we stop doing that and we just get up and sing whatever it is and all, all we're doing a charity performance or whatever that I really enjoy it as much. That's the bit, because that's the bit where you're connecting with other people. And I tend to forget about the technique at that point. So yes, you've got to do technique, but then at a certain point, you've got to let, let that go. Absolutely. And just get on and perform. It's a shame, I think, sometimes. It's almost like, I know some people talk about going down the Estill wormhole or sort of going down the technique mm. wormhole and, and it all becoming very, um, we're, you know, moving parts rather than connection. And But the connection is massively important, isn't it, with communication? Absolutely. And, and I mean, I'm not, I only perform in, a, in, in the community choir myself, but you can see it. I mean, with performers, whether you're watching them on the stage or on the screen or whatever, I mean, just some people have it and they, they do connect with their audience, probably even more so on stage, in fact. Uh, and you can just see uh, there's that, that, that extra special something. 
Can you remember any extra special performances that have given you that goosebump moment? The first time I went to see Wicked, I actually can't remember the performance. It might have been Kerry Ellis. And the first time I actually heard it on stage, uh, Defying Gravity, I heard that for the first time on stage and I thought, I just can't believe what, what I'm hearing. Probably one of why I've been back to see it about another five times, I think. So, yeah, there was, there was that which just gave me absolute goosebumps. So, yeah, I think that's probably my defining moment. Excellent. That's that's a great one. I'll, I'll put a link to Define Gravity. Um, I know there's a few older Idina Menzel ones from Broadway on YouTube. but she. I think I could listen to Idina Menzel all day, every day, but I've never actually seen her before. I'd love to. She's got such a different voice to so many other singers. She's got, I don't know, edge to it i'd love to examine her larynx yes and- wouldn't that be cool we could just go bring her bring her to the uk let's well, have a look i think she's got this fascinating voice and i'd love to know how she produces that yes i i mean it's funny i, I was lucky enough to see her once in london when she came over and she was in rent so she'd been doing oh, Rent right. on Broadway and Rent when it came to London was my obsession at the time in the uh, in the early 90s when I was at drama school. Uh, would that be something anyone could tempt you into, Sue, in the future? You know, sort of sideline hustle of uh, getting into a show, you know, locally or? Um, I don't think so. I, I, I mean, despite having, you know, done some solo work uh, in my teens and early 20s. No, I don't think so. I, I'm, at my, I'm at my best in the chorus. I'm very happy in the choir that I'm in and, you know, doing what we do. Uh, but I, over the past year, whilst we've been doing this Zoom virtual choir stuff, Liz, our um, choir leader, has been very keen on us recording stuff and then sort of sending it in and then it's all been edited and it's all the charity videos and so on. And she's done four or five brilliant ones. I've, felt that incredibly pressurising because it's like being a solo artist recording yourself mm. in you know on your iPad or your iPhone or whatever to a backing track and none of us are used to doing this so I did do a couple of them sort of and sort of was felt incredibly stressed and pressurised so no I don't think that's really me I, I'm fine teaching and presenting all my specialist subjects that's terrific but when it comes to singing I am now definitely a chorus girl that's all good, though. It's a great, fun place to be, isn't it? And, yeah, you know, no, it's you, a great place to you, be. What, what are your favourite numbers with your choir? And can we can we link to them? Can we put a little... Uh... Yeah, so it's the Do Your Thing. The Do Your Thing? Yeah, Do Your... D-Y-T Choir, Do Your Thing Choir. They're on YouTube at the moment, actually. There's the, the last one they did, which I wasn't involved in, was Seasons of Love. Oh, wonderful. Um, yeah, um, which was kind of done as a it's, it's a year since COVID, so it was it was not celebrated exactly. It was to recognise a year since the onset of COVID. So that was that one, and then we did proud. We, so proud, we did that as a that was the first sort of virtual one we did, which I did participate in. That's on YouTube as well, and so yeah, there are various ones with with the choir and choir songs that I love. Well, the new one actually that we're just about to start. Uh, apparently, we're going to do one of my favourite songs of all time, which is um, "Let the River Run." from Working Girl, the film. Ooh. We do we do This Is Me from The Greatest Showman, which oh. again... Oh, I bet that's so cool. And is it like a gr- big bunch of oh. like women just singing it out? Oh, love yeah. it. Love it. There are a few men in the club, but not very many, but mostly ladies. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, that's a, another one of my favourites. Oh, fantastic. Brilliant song. So yeah, I can feel... So I feel... I mean, 
that that brightness of your energy, loving ABBA, show tunes, the drama, you know, it's it's nice to see that that's going on inside of someone that's also really clever and academic and can do clever things with machines. I love meeting people that because sometimes sometimes clever people can be a little dry, Sue. Come on, admit it. You know, she's an ABBA party girl, really. It's all good. Oh, I love a bit of ABBA. I think if, if you, you know, a Christmas party, anything, that, the thing that will definitely get me on the floor is always ABBA. Yeah. Fantastic. But, yeah. That's amazing. Have you got a favourite ABBA tune? Um, yeah, on a slightly sparrow, the winner takes it all probably is my favourite. But, you know, on an upbeat, if you're going to go for an upbeat, then it's got to be Dancing Queen. Oh, yeah. Waterloo. I mean, you can't get much more update up. Upbeating the Waterloo. Yeah, that's amazing. That's so much fun. I'm going to link to all these songs so when people get to the end of the episode, they can uh, go and have a little ABBA party at the end. That'd be super cool. On a personal note, we just in the middle of doing up a property in the Lake District, which we bought as a sort of a holiday let, and we've got one in Cornwall as well. So we've been in quite a lot of time. Well, now that lockdown's eased, we can actually go up and sort of do those. So I'm, I'm doing that for a little while, but then, I, you know, in the next few months, I hope to outline the second edition of my book that you held up before. So I'm very much going to be the editor this time. I'm going to get colleagues uh, to write. But there's a lot more to write since I published the book in 2016. There's a lot more to say now. We wrote the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapy's new endoscopic evaluation of the larynx guidelines, which were published in March 2020, which I was the lead author for. And so there's quite a lot more to say. And of course, we're going to have to cover what you do during pandemics and personal projective equipment and all that sort of thing. So I'm hoping, you know, to give it that sort of some time over the summer and, and give that some thoughts. So that's probably the big, the other thing, that I, big thing I'm planning on is the second edition of the book. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, as soon as I see anything online about that, I will share it with our community Thank and, you. Uh, you know, make everybody aware that there's a new goodie on the shelves that we can uh, go and pick up. And support that because it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And uh, you know, thank you again for your time today, Sue. It's been a really enjoyable conversation. And, and okay, thanks, Sue. Bye, Bye. Thank you for joining me on the Vocal Freedom Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the episode and will move into your day with a bit more vocal freedom, feeling that you can express using your voice and let the world hear what you have to say. Visit colchestervoiceacademy.com forward slash podcast. Sign up to be kept informed as new episodes are published and consider joining our online community. Membership to this will allow you to post questions to our guests, link you to show notes, social media links, and entitle you to exclusive offers from our guests. See you next time.